I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. How are you doing, dear? I'm okay. Good. Got a little puppy. Yeah. She's very sweet. She's cuddling. Groundbreaking anarchist Emma Goldman once said, A revolution without dancing is not a revolution worth having. Okay. So let's fast forward about a hundred years or so and talk about Riot Girl. Okay. <laughs> so with all these episodes we've done on art and media and musicals, we've never done one just on music, on like bands and stuff. I guess I guess not. And this one still technically isn't uh, because Riot Girl is not a music genre. No. It is a revolutionary social movement that happened to find its voice and its largest platform in music. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. So, yeah, still haven't done it. Never mind. <laughs> we'll get to it eventually. One of these days. Now, the, the early 90s weren't a great time to be a young woman in America. No. The second wave of feminism had uh, uh, fizzled out, uh, had, had compartmentalized and, and collapsed, it had its gains, certainly, Title IX for one. It had not transformed uh, social spaces to the degree that it could have or included uh, as broad a range of women as it should have. Yeah. This is also the time of Anita Hill's hearings uh, on before Congress regarding Clarence Thomas's sexual harassment during his confirmation to become a Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. Her treatment, the, the way she was just dismissed, uh, was dispiriting and, for many, radicalizing. Yeah. And even communities that, that espoused uh, a rebellion and an anti-authoritarian ethos were still unwelcoming and unequal to women, like, say, the punk and hardcore music sh- scenes. Yeah. There are a lot of stories of women just being relegated to the back of shows and being referred to as the coat hangers. Oh. Because guys would just hand them their coats so they would go to the front and dance and and slam into one another and create a a physically unwelcoming space. Well, you know, I've been to some concerts where that's still kind of the case. Yeah, yeah. Any any woman that would play would just be... uh, was much more likely to be dismissed or asked, oh, are you carrying that for your boyfriend? Like, no, no, that this is my drum kit. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Now, every online source I found about the beginning of Riot Girl that, that mentioned this sense, that this trend in the scene to, to being unwelcoming and unequal, all the ones that had comments had people saying it wasn't actually like that. So let me just say right now, if that's true, why was there this big influential movement that grew out of talking about it if it wasn't there? That's a good question. I, uh, okay. Uh, so let, let, let's meet our cast of characters here and, and how they came together, how they met one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is impossible to overstate the influence of Kathleen Hanna in Riot Girl. Uh, I'm surprised it took me five minutes to get to her name. That's a long time, actually. Well, you know, you had to set up. Yeah, yeah. One also cannot stress enough that she was part of a community and a network. Uh, But Kathleen was involved in feminist activism and protest since she was a wee baby child. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. She went to Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington to study photography. Cool. 
Uh, her explicitly feminist work was censored from college shows. Uh, she she was not allowed to participate in you know the, the photography programs like college uh, exhibitions. Why? Why? Because of her political messaging. Well, I'm curious, like what what the imagery was, and best, like was it a lot of nudity, and there they're was like a no lot nudity? Of nudity. Is it was it a lot of like blood? Like what what are we talking about here? <laughs> we're, we're talking about a lot of nudity put up against like uh, images from like 50s and 60s homekeeping magazines. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The commodification of femininity. Okay. So in response to that, she opened her own gallery space in the middle of the city. Uh, to show her work, her friends' work, other censored students. Mm -hmm. At the age of 18, she put on her own fashion show in the college library. Uh, all of the clothes had pieces of her friend's account of sexual assault printed in huge letters on them. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of thing that Kathleen Hanna did as a kid. <laughs> well, not a kid. Yeah. 18-year-olds are kids. A teenager. It's a little different than, like, an eight-year-old. I suppose, I suppose. She also started performing in spoken word shows until she was given advice by uh, Kathy Acker at a, a book signing, I believe it was, to start a band. She said she had a lot to say, and uh, Kathy Acker's like, well, then don't do spoken word. No one goes there. No one <laughs> listens to that. Go to where the people are. Start a band. Very, very small pool of people. Who go to spoken word events? Mm -hmm. It's not where you meet the you reach the masses. No, especially if you want to like I don't know influence people who probably already don't think what you think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hey, here's a Kathleen Hanna quote for you. I always saw performing as an advertisement for feminist activity. Eh, okay. Then she got into the zine scene. She made a lot of zines, uh, Revolution Girl Style Now and Bikini Kill, uh, both with Toby Vale, who we'll talk about in a second. Bikini Kill is the name of a band, not a zine. <laughs> well, now you're getting ahead of yourself. Oh. In one of those zines, uh, she coined the slogan Girl Power. It was uh, plastered against the back cover of uh, one of the issues. It was not used before then? No. Oh. She invented the phrase girl power. Okay. So speaking of Toby Vale, she was a drummer. She started volunteering at Evergreen State's radio station when she was in high school and started her first band not long after that. And she also had her own solo zine. I mean, none of these were solo zines. She was just the solo publisher of Jigsaw, uh, which she used to just talk about bands she liked and specifically encourage more women to join the scene. Come to shows, table at shows. Make your own bands. I'm a drummer. I'll play with anybody. Now, Jigsaw, I thought would be a magazine either about horror movies uh -huh. or puzzle enthusiasts. <laughs> Not woodworking in general. No. No, okay. No, no, that's too obvious. <laughs> Kathleen Hanna saw the second issue of Jigsaw when she was touring with uh, another band. We're not going to talk much about Viva Knievel. And Gosh, now I'm really wondering, though, if there's like, you know how there's like rail fans? Mm -hmm. Are there like puzzle fans? <laughs> Is that like a thing? Are there puzzle enthusiasts and like puzzle conventions? I would love to see puzzle fans talk about like which pictures get used for the same template, right? Because that's probably how it goes, right? There's only so many 800 piece puzzle cutout templates. Yeah. And there's a lot 
of of um painter of light cottages. Well, and they probably t- I wonder if they talk about like the paper quality that the puzzle's <laughs> made out of and like proper cutting technique for the puzzle so that way the pieces aren't like still together when you mm-hmm, open your mm-hmm. I'm very curious about this underground world of puzzle enthusiasts. Okay. Uh, maybe my next episode will be about that underground world, but I'm going to okay. talk about this okay. other underground scene for okay. a while, if that's okay. 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 So yeah, the, the end of that sentence was just that Viva Knievel, uh, was just that Kathleen Hanna started submitting things to Jigsaw, and that's how their uh, a relationship between the two of them started out. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a new person now, Allison Wolf. Okay. Uh, she was raised by a single mother. Uh, her mother founded the first women's health clinic in Olympia, Washington. Oh. Uh, her mother went to work in a bulletproof vest because of anti-abortion activists. Yep. That's that's definitely uh, a thing, unfortunately. She became close friends with Molly Newman when they both attended the University of Oregon, uh, and they wanted to do a radio show together. They, they weren't roommates, but their dorm rooms shared a wall. Okay. So they're very close to roommates. Now, the thing is, the University of Oregon doesn't have a radio station. Oh, that makes it hard. So Toby Vale suggested they make a zine instead. Well, that's what you do when there's not a radio station. To- Toby loves zines. Just, just make zines. And promoting zines and promoting others to make more zines. They called theirs Girl Germs. That's a good name. It's that's a- the best <laughs> name that we've heard so far. <laughs> Molly was from uh, uh, Washington, D.C., and worked for Mo Udall, a a congressman from Arizona. So after Congress hours, she she went into the office when it was closed and printed hundreds of copies of girl germs on a congressional copy machine. I don't think that's allowed. (laughs) I think that's against policy. So all, all these zinesters are collaborating and submitting to each other's stuff, and they're making like this mutually supportive, like bi-coastal network. You've got a lot of stuff in Olympia. You're starting to reach out to to the Washington D.C. scene, uh, and everyone sort of moved to D.C. in the winter of 1990, and that's when they started putting out like community meetings. Uh, girls responded to the call to make something, and what they made was Riot Girl, another zine. <laughs> Of course, because that's all you'd make. Uh, it, this was a collaboration primarily between Molly Newman and Allison Wolf. Uh, it was also the name of the movement. Uh, the name came from Jen Smith, uh, a person we haven't mentioned yet, uh, who's a friend of Allison Wolf. She reacted to the recent Mount Pleasant race riots in D.C. in a letter to Allison Wolf saying, we need to start a girl riot. This is what we need to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toby Vale had been using the the G R R R L spelling in her own work, so they they borrowed that uh, to to make Riot Girl. Girl. Yes. Yes. Girl. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like Moki. Bean mats. One's knocking. Of course, movements need manifestos. Oh yes, manifestos. Love those manifestos. Kathleen Hanna took the lead in writing uh, Riot Girls, uh, first manifesto at least, with input from everyone at those early meetings. Uh, they, they were held at the Positive Force House in D.C., a community organizing space. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the impulse behind these meetings was just to see what if a bunch of women met, what would happen? 
And what happened was they, they talk about their uh, uh, frustration at the world, at being second-class citizens, having a lot to say, and no one who's handing them the mic to listen. So they just t- seized it themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the manifesto was first published in Gunk, uh, a, a zine from uh, Rem- Remdasha Bikin, and then uh, in Bikini Kill issue two. Okay. So uh, let, let's share that first Riot Girl manifesto. Because us girls crave records and books and fanzines that speak to us that we feel included in and can understand in our own ways. Because we want to make it easier for girls to see slash hear each other's work so that we can share strategies and criticize, applaud each other. Because we must take over the means of production in order to create our own moanings. Because viewing our work as being connected to our girlfriends' politics, real lives, is essential if we are going to figure out how we are doing impacts, reflects, perpetuates, or disrupts the status quo. Because we recognize the fantasies of instant macho gun revolution as impractical lies meant to keep us simply dreaming instead of becoming our dreams, and thus seek to create revolution in our own lives every single day by envisioning and creating Alternatives to the bullshit Christian capitalist way of doing things. Yeah. I like that one. That one's good. (laughs) (laughs) Because we want and need to encourage and be encouraged in the face of all our own insecurities, in the face of beer gut boy rock that tells us we can't play our instruments, in the face of authorities who say our band slash zine slash etc. are the worst in the U.S. and... Because we don't want to assimilate to someone else's boy standards of what he or of what is or isn't. Because we are unwilling to falter under claims that we are reactionary reverse sexists and not the true punk rock soul crusaders that we know we really are. Because we know that life is much more than physical survival and are patently aware that the punk rock you can do anything ideal is crucial to the coming angry girl rock revolution which seeks to save the psychic and cultural lives of girls and women everywhere according to their own terms, not ours. Because we are interested in creating non-hierarchical ways of being and making music, friends, and scenes based on communication plus understanding, instead of competition plus good-bad categorizations. Because doing, reading, seeing, hearing cool things that validate and challenge us can help us gain the strength and sense of community that we need in order to figure out how bullshit like racism, able-bodyism, ageism, speciesism, classism, thinism, sexism, anti-Semitism, and heterosexism figures in our own life. Because we see fostering and supporting girl scenes and girl artists of all kinds as integral to this process. Because we hate capitalism in all its forms and see our main goal as sharing information and staying alive instead of making profits of being cool according to traditional standards. Because we are angry at a society that tells us girl equals dumb, girl equals bad, girl equals weak. Because we are unwilling to let our real and valid anger be diffused and or turned against us via the via the internalization of sexism as witnessed in girl girl jealousism and self-defeating girl type behaviors because i believe with my whole heart mind body that girls constitute a revolutionary soul force that can and will change the world for real so when i say Riot Girl is not a musical subgenre despite what you may have heard it is a revolutionary social movement that is what I'm talking about. Yes. 
I, I'm talking about anti-capitalism. If you got a a manifesto, it's something a little bigger. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm talking about this network of activist-minded young women, most of which uh, had not gone on to play uh, music yet. A lot of people at that meeting were. Some already had. We're gonna when we talk about the music, I'm gonna have to rewind the clock a little bit, but. It was more about the the community than the the shows, at least at this point. Mm-hmm. So let, let's break down what more of the points of that manifesto means. There was a lot of focus on reclaiming girlhood as a place and source of power. Like you don't see the word woman in there. Uh huh. These are girls. Mm-hmm. They they are proudly cre- reclaiming the title of girl, not to be infantilized, but a- as a wellspring of of independence mm-hmm. a- and striking back at the moment where like you know women are discarded but girls are valued. Well, I'm going to carry that value throughout my entire life. Yeah, and so you you have to treat me right because I'm a girl. Mm-hmm. But now girl means violently fighting against the patriarchy, uh, sexism, ageism, able-bodiedism, reclaiming and redefining hand in hand. Yeah. And the the largest, most central tenant that you see is is the do-it-yourself ethos that was inherited from the the broader punk rock movement of the 70s and beyond. Mm -hmm. I mean, they they are making their own uh, voice. They're making their own zines. They're, They're... about to crash into the music scene playing instruments the way they want to i this was fertile ground everybody said that the the first punk bands couldn't play their instruments and that's part of why they're great right yeah k records was huge at the time we're going to mention them a bit more later and they were founded by a guy one of his slogans was learn how not to play your instrument yeah there there are no barriers here just do it of course, even though there's no barriers, you still have to make your own band all the same. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break and come back with that side of the story. We're Bikini Kill, and we want revolution! Girls don't know! Hey, girlfriend! I got a proposition goes on the market! Tell you to do what you Welcome back, everybody. Hello. So, like I said uh, a little bit before the break, by the time the manifesto was out, some of the first bands had formed, and the ver- the, the first one that got together was Bikini Kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just heard one of their songs, a snippet, a second ago. Uh, Kathleen Hanna and Toby Vale joined Kathy Wilcox and Billy Karen to make the first and most widely known Riot Girl band. Uh, they they were loud and angry, artistic. A lot of their stage presence was inherited from uh, militant feminist uh, uh, activities mm-hmm. in, in the 80s, 70s, and before. Uh, Kathleen, just an incredible front person, probably the frontmost front person. <laughs> uh, she just commanded attention and controlled the crowd. And she was very mindful of controlling the crowd, making sure that everyone felt a shared responsibility for throwing apples out of her shows, Mm -hmm. because there's no place for that at a Bikini Kill show. Yeah. Uh, In her first performance, talking about uh, uh, inheriting things from protest movements, she performed shirtless with slut written in magic marker on her stomach. Mm -hmm. 
And that first show is also where one of the the messages that just reverberated through the punk and hardcore scenes was first said, all girls to the front, I'm not kidding, all boys be cool for once in your lives, go back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Their debut self-released mixtape was Revolution Girl Style Now, named for another one of Toby Vale's slogans. Mm-hmm. Then we come to Bratmobile, the, the project of Allison Wolf and Molly Newman. Uh, they formed a band uh, and ran through a few lineups over a short period of time. Uh, for a while, they played with Jen Smith, who was the one who called for the Girl Riot. But then they found their, their final guitarist, Aaron Smith, no relation, uh, <laughs> who had her own zine, Teenage Gang Debs. Okay. Which I think is a weird sideways uh, uh, play on words on Eugene V. Debs, but I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, Eugene Gang Debs was as much about classic TV as current music. They, they had a lot of Brady Bunch content. Yeah. In one of their issues, they interviewed the guy who played Cousin Oliver. Oh. <laughs> weird. Yeah, yeah. So it's not too much of a surprise that her uh, guitar style brought a lot of surf rock influence to the Bratmobile sound. Yeah. They they played their first show on Valentine's Day 1991 with loaned instruments. Did not have their own yet. Well, you know, you gotta make money first before you can spend it. (laughs) Nobody's making any money here. Well, then definitely don't spend it. Uh, Allison Wolf made a conscious effort to listen to different music so their songs wouldn't sound like all the boy punks in the scene. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she's listened to the Ramones by now, but back then she definitely did not. No Ramones at the time. Not out of disrespect, but just because she didn't want to sound like everyone else they would be sharing bills with. Yeah. She looked to groups that were other politicized women, and she found them in hip-hop. So oh. she she got a lot of her earliest inspiration from Salt and Peppa and TLC, etc. Yeah. TLC was so socially conscious in their earliest work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She had a really cheerleader-inspired stage presence. There was a lot of arm pumping in ways that can only be described as cheerleader-esque. Yeah. She ended a lot of her, her numbers with uh, the splits right in front of the stage. Ooh. Uh but I, I really enjoy the, the sort of bouncy and giggly delivery of really cutting and really profanity-laden lyrics is, is a great sort of tension uh, that, that I enjoy from Bratmobile. I like to think of them as sort of the, the satirists of the Riot Girl scene. Yeah. Also makes it really hard to uh, talk about their lyrics on this show where we're family-friendly. Lots of quacking. Lots of quacking. So much quacking. <laughs> and then the, the last uh, first wave riot girl act uh that i want to talk about might even be second wave like this all moved so fast it's hard to, to know where to draw the line it was heavens to betsy heavens to betsy was founded by uh corin tucker another evergreen state student in olympia uh, she was friends with tracy sawyer who wasn't uh, attending college she had just graduated high school oh uh, they saw bratmobile play in a basement show in olympia which inspired them to drive to atlanta to buy a cheap drum set and start writing their own songs. Cool. Uh, They started out as like the softer, more lyrical Riot Girl act, uh, but over the course of their uh, career, transitioned to more of a heavier grunge sound that was getting popular both in Olympia and, you know, the country as a whole. We are talking about the early 1990s here. Yeah. This is very much entwined with that uh, indie band explosion, which we're going to get to in a bit. 
Their first public show ever was uh, at the first night of the International Pop Underground Festival. So no pressure, by the way. No pressure. Their first recording was a demo cassette that was done in the basement of this punk house, the Red House, uh, recorded by Molly Newman of Bratmobile. Mm -hmm. Again, do-it-yourself, mutually supportive networks here. So let's talk about that International Pop Underground Convention. Okay. In August of 1991, K Records, who we mentioned, they were the big uh, indie label in town, the town being Olympia, Mm -hmm. the town where everybody was excited about independent music. And the the spotlight had recently swung on them. Yeah. We we were on the cusp of, you know, Nirvana exploding in the fall of 91, spring of 92. Mm-hmm. So they organized a week-long festival of independent music in Olympia. It was, it was about the greater community and demonstrating what can be done DIY. So while Riot Girl was one part uh, of this community, one branch, there were a lot of others – and the cool thing about this scene, as it is told nowadays by the people who were there, mm-hmm. is that for, for all of the, you know, personal rivalries that, that might happen with any large group of young people, the scene itself was really mutually supportive. Like, just because we have differences with your manifesto, I'll still show you how to do a power chord, you know? Yeah. We play different kinds of music. But I will go to your shows and I will read your zines and I'll pass them on to somebody who I think would like your thing better than they like my thing. Uh Uh-huh. Mutual support. And everyone was really unified in being Mm anti-corporate. The the one thing everybody shared was that do-it-yourself ethos. The very first night of that convention was called Love Rock Revolution Girl Style Now. It's a long name. Often shortened to just girls' night. This is probably best for... You know, quicker conversations. There were 15 acts on the official bill. Like, this was a a large enough event that a lot of unofficial side events were happening at the same time. Yeah. People opening up basement shows, art galleries, spoken word stuff. It it was anybody who was making art was either uh, trying to become a part of it or seeing how, how big this could possibly be going alongside it. Yeah. So 15 girl acts played the, on the official bill, and the Olympia Theater, which was the, the main venue, uh, they kept uh, playing until 3 a.m. Mm. It, was a, it was a big show. Yeah. Uh, the three Riot Girl bands I, I've already mentioned specifically played, and so did non-Riot Girl woman-led acts like Mecha Normal, Seven Year Bitch, and Courtney Love. The band Courtney Love, not the person Courtney Love. Oh. To be clear. <laughs> There's a difference there. But I don't believe Hole was in town for this night. Ah, that gets very confusing. (laughs) Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Did they name it, like, after her? This is how tight-knit the scene was. (laughs) Courtney Love was not Courtney Love yet, at least not on a national stage, and there was already a band named it for her. Okay, I was just wondering if it was, like, coincidence where they were like, (laughs) hey, that girl, let's name a band after her. Uh, th- this was the big coming out party for Riot Girl. I mean, the Olympia scene was where all the coolest stuff was happening. This this attracted a whole lot of attention from, you know, music writers. And Riot Girl was at f- the front and center, like literally the front. It was the first night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was a new label starting up in town called Kill Rockstars. And they wanted to put out some of this music. They just like, you're chill and K Records can only do so much. Uh-huh. I will take up this slack. 
Their first album was a compilation of 14 bands, all of which happened to play at the IPUC. They, they were distributing it during the first night. Uh, then a few months later, they had a re-release that added five more songs from five more bands, mm-hmm. four of which were able to play that week. There's a Nirvana track on the CD album. They weren't in town. They were touring. Yeah. <laughs> Just getting out ahead of that. But Kill Rock Stars got into the community, became a success. They released Bratmobile's first full-length album, Potty Mouth. Fantastic. I love that album. Uh, Heavens to Betsy's only album. Uh, and nearly the entire Bikini Kill discography came out through Kill Rock Stars. Mm-hmm. They are still going today. Oh. A lot of the albums they're putting out uh, lately are stand-up acts doing comedy. Oh. This compilation was like their first music album, and the comedy albums are sort of a, a continuation of that spoken word a tradition for them. I guess. I wouldn't consider comedy spoken word, but sure. <laughs> I guess it's close enough. I it's close enough. So we've got this bi-coastal network of zines and bands now. Yeah. And a country that is hungry for whatever is coming out of Olympia. Mm-hmm. So Riot Girl is posed to grow. Uh, chapters with their own zines and activism and outreach start in places across the country, across the world. Mm-hmm. And with new girls come new bands, like uh, Excuse 17 started in Olympia, uh, formed by another group of friends that were attending Evergreen State College. Yeah. Huggy Bear in England is a notable Riot Girl band. That they had to deal with not only the, the uh, misogyny of the London punk scene, but the sort of deterioration of the London punk scene. It had become very commercialized. The, the DIY ethic was seen as a relic of a past age when everyone is just getting snatched up by EMI and other corporate labels. Yeah. Wait, you're, you're still making zines? That's so adorably retro. Ha ha ha. That's, that's what Huggy Bear had to deal with over in England. Oh boy. And if, if you uh, were to follow these zines as they were coming out, like the information in them starts to change and include things like, where is a cool place to crash for the night when you're on tour in your shitty van? Yeah. Where should you definitely not crash? Do not trust that guy. Yeah. Where's a good place to get a, a vegetarian lunch when you're driving through Nebraska? Probably not many places at that time. I'll have a grilled cheese. Uh, <laughs> so with this increased attention, now now the mainstream is starting to pay attention. We, we've got these young people trying to create a network of young women to voice and address their concerns, right? To seize a space within the underground and music scenes. Mm-hmm. None of that means, hey, let's talk to USA Today. Let's try to be good at dealing with uh, a mainstream corporate press. They were all very bad at it. Yeah. Yeah, Newsweek, USA Today, the New York Times, Rolling Stone. Everybody wants to, to get a piece on these bands. Everybody wants to talk about them and, and present this strange new undercurrent that, that is growing and, and setting high schools ablaze. Mm-hmm. And the movement didn't really like the tone that this coverage took. Yeah. They were dismissed for being young. A, a very a, a lot of these stories ended with, it remains to be seen what will happen when these girls grow out of it and join the real world. Of course. When they're responding to issues that are incredibly the real world. Yeah. Oh, when I grow out of being catcalled, that doesn't happen. No. 
when I grow out of Clarence Thomas, uh, Supreme Court justice, speaking from 2019, still hasn't happened. Nope. Of course, the, the general dismissal of feminism, especially outspoken feminism, that they're, they're man haters, uh, that they're all abuse victims venting their rage. They were abuse victims venting their rage that they should be allowed to. Yeah, I mean... That's not a reason to dismiss people. <laughs> it's not a reason to dismiss people, and it's also painting with a very broad brush. Yes, I mean, like... Some of them were open, some of them weren't, and some were lucky. You, yeah. you can't paint them all with the same no. uh, uh, label. Of course, the coverage is generally only interested in the music, not the movement. Yeah. And the, the common uh, uh, way to drive the analog uh, of page views, I guess, to drive buzz uh, in this pre-internet age, or dawn of internet age, rather. You know, hey, so... Uh, what do you think about so-and-so? You know, just asking about other women in music to take a quote and reprint it out of context to manufacture a feud. Yep. Spin Magazine, uh, in a particularly unethical uh, example, outed one of the members of Excuse 17. Oh. Without her permission. And of course. so her dad uh, was like following his, his daughter's press clippings, Proud Papa, and then called one day like, hey, is there some stuff we need to talk about? I hear you date girls. That was a surprise I read in the, in the paper. You spin magazine. <laughs> the, the commodification of it, this weird like circus angle, like uh, Allison Wolf was invited uh, along with the rest of Bratmobile to appear on the Sally Jesse Raphael show. Oh God! In order to have a, a very shouty debate with David Lee Roth, I guess proud womanizer in in the music in rock and roll for daytime TV audiences, they were not interested in in being booked on that show. Yeah, I can't imagine. You know who had the good coverage of Riot Girl Sassy Magazine? That's where the good stuff was. Yeah. So in the face of all this, Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill uh, declared a media blackout. If the press is not going to report in good faith, she won't go along with it uh, and just deny them content. So they, they can say whatever they want, but it'll be clear that it's not representing them. They, they will have no quotes to run off of. Yeah. And invited everyone to join her, which was then reported as a fit of ego and uh, a claim to her sole leadership of the scene. Kathleen Hanna was in a very odd place because there was no single leader, but she was still she was still the frontmost front person of all the bands. Mm -hmm. She was the writer of the manifesto uh -huh. with lots of collaboration, but it was you know her final language. <laughs> we we don't talk about Thomas Jefferson's collaborators on the Declaration of Independence. Okay, yeah, self evident in the first line that that was Ben Franklin. By the way, give him his due. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> So, so yeah, it's a, it's a strange, awkward place to be in, especially when there, there are moments when the press wants, gives you an opportunity to let it work for you just so then they, they can, uh, use it to, to tar you in the next issue. Yeah. That's how the press works. Don't talk to the press. Uh, she was so serious about this press blackout that she agreed to be in a movie for a friend, just like documenting you know, a sort of for us, by us movie. It might have even been a fictional short film. I, I wish I could remember. But she insisted on wearing a pink ski mask to hide her face while doing this favor for someone she liked. Yeah. Like, nobody means nobody. You don't get to have my face right now. Yeah. Yeah. So Bratmobile 
had some internal divisions over their goals as the scene grew and spread, they broke up on stage in 1994. Oh. In front of Joan Jett, like in this New York club show. Yeah. Were they like playing the show and got into an argument or were they like, hey, we're announcing it, we're done? They got into an argument on stage. Oh, okay. This tension between I want to play for the people who are really down with us and come out to see us. I love the basement shows. It is a strange transition when you you come in from this tight knit scene to suddenly have strangers who are there to are they there to gawk? Uh Yeah, it's it's different mood. Uh, Heavens to Betsy and Excuse 17 both broke up rather early. Their guitarists uh, uh, joined together to form Sleater Kinney with some other members. Uh, they joined their their feminist message with a an indie rock vibe, a bit more college, a bit less basement. Mm-hmm. Sleater Kinney went on to be probably the most successful, commercially at least, of all of the bands we're going to mention. Really well regarded and and well deserved recognition at that. Now the the initial drive was to take the narrative and grab the mic. But now that mic was held by corporate media who wanted to use Riot Girl as a genre label rather than a, a flexible ideology. Yeah. Like that manifesto was just the first one. There was an invitation for everybody who wanted the name to take it and to make their own manifesto. Mm-hmm. Every community, every girl who, who saw power in that label to, to make it themselves. Mm-hmm. So bands like L7, Hole, Spitboy were labeled Riot Girl, even though all of them said they were not. Yeah. L7 pre-existed and they were happy with the, the labels they picked before Riot Girl was coined. Uh, Spitboy uh, was from LA and they were not big into the reclamation of language. Spitboy was a, an integrated band and so they were not down with girls to the front, boys to the back. They're like, mm, any segregation just like doesn't fit with our whole deal. Yeah. We love all of your goals. We love almost all of your politics. But your tactics are, are one too many for us to sign on. Uh-huh. Yeah. And whole, I mean, Courtney Love is famous for just being misanthropic. Yeah. And maybe putting up a former Riverdale actor to steal her husband's guitar. But. Yeah, we're <laughs> there. Sex Archie listeners know. Go find that episode, you guys. But now that we're moving into the mid, mid to late 90s, you can think of some more angry, rebellious women with, with feminist ideals were being commodified for top 40 radio. Just look at the timing of when Jagged Little Pill dropped. Yeah. And then we, we get even later when uh, probably the, the music act most associated with the slogan of girl power comes out, the Spice Girls. Yeah, they did have a song about that. <laughs> like yelled it a lot. Not the, the underground punk singer who no. uh, uh, coined it. But an act assembled by a major label for maximum corporate profit. Yeah. Assembled by, you know, a, a male producer who, who went on to repeat that, you know, a, a conglomerate formula. Yeah. I was not a fan of them. <laughs> I never had a Spice Girls phase. No? I never even saw that movie until, like, I was in college. <laughs> I... My roommate, like, wanted to watch it. This is what I... Apparently missed out on. Apparently. The, the, okay. The Josie and the Pussycats movie, way better. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're going to take another break and be right back. Around, 
Welcome back, everybody. Hello. We've been talking about some of the the external pressure put on the scene, on the movement, that they were not equipped to deal with. Mm-hmm. But there were plenty of, of divisions and, and fissures within. Uh, the exterior pressure didn't help, but it's, it's not all that led to the decline of the Riot Girl uh, uh, movement. Now, nearly everyone I've mentioned up to this point was a white, college-educated young woman. Yes. Uh, now, feminism, to be effective, needs to be broader than that. And Riot Girl was often perceived at failing that need. Mm-hmm. Uh, to say it was a white movement is erasing the people of color that were there. Uh, they, they were present the whole time. But saying it was fully inclusive and diverse is to ignore the criticisms of those same individuals. Yeah. You cannot clearly call it either exclusive or inclusive, to be fair. Yeah. Like I mentioned at the top, Ramdasha Bikim, a central in the early organizing. Uh, but as time went on, she felt more frustration as the token black friend of Riot Girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, her zine, Gunk, in later issues featured more and more like personal essays on her intersectional experience. Mm-hmm. Now, the L.A. chapter of Riot Girl was particularly forward in reaching out to other networks doing allied work. Uh, they were tight with the anarcho-punks, uh, the Black Panthers, uh, Latina advocacy groups. Mm-hmm. In 1997, there was a group of black women in New York, uh, black musicians who put on their own show and called it a Sister Girl Riot on Valentine's Day 1997. Mm. Uh, so they, they took the name for their own message uh, uh, to speak for their own struggle. Like, you, you're fine doing what you do, but we're going to pick up the ball and run this way to speak to a, a, a black adult women concerns ra- rather than adolescent, you know, college white girls from Olympia. Yeah. Yeah. So what did all of this do? What did it do? What? What's, why, why, why does it matter? What effects did it all have? There, there is some music that I really like and hopefully people out there enjoy, but, but what else did it make? Yeah. I mean, I, I left off before the break talking about the, the co-option and corporatization of Riot Girl, its images, its messages. Uh, but through a certain lens, that is on its own a victory. I mean, sure, the, the ideas may be third or fourth hand uh, and making profits for a patriarchal conglomerate, but they're still getting to an audience and they are still empowering. Yeah. There is still power in girl power, even if it is Baby Spice shouting it in a, a incredibly colorful, saturated, professional polish music video. Mm-hmm. The Riot Girl name is still taken up by acts to this day, and the original acts have been an inspiration to many, many more that don't use the label. Uh, Pussy Riot, the activist collective slash band, uh, has been very forward that they're inspired by the Riot Girl scene, maybe even including Kathleen Hanna's pink ski mask in that movie. Yeah. Maybe even including that. One of my personal favorite acts, Screaming Females, uh, Melissa Paternoster, their their lead singer and guitarist, was no longer intimidated to play guitar when she heard a bunch of young women learning their instruments on stage, learning by doing, uh, just because they had something to say. She figured, yeah, I, I can do that too. Why not? And now she is one of the most respected rock guitarists alive. She's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but... 
every band that is all women or women-led or outspoken feminists of any gender that is allowed by the press to just be themselves and not be pigeonholed as a girl group is walking through a door that the Riot Girls kicked down. Mm-hmm. So let's let's do a bit of a catch-up, a bit of a where are they now. Okay. Kathleen Hanna has led a fascinating life. In addition to all the music I've mentioned, I would recommend The Punk Singer, a documentary about her that came out a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I've tried to uh, shine a light specifically on what the women in the Olympia scene were doing, but I do have to pause for this story just because I think it's emblematic of how intertwined these women were with everything else that came out of it. Uh-huh. So Kathleen is uh, getting drunk with a friend of hers. Friend happened to be Toby Vale's boyfriend at the time. And they decide to go and uh, graffiti this women's crisis pregnancy center, the sort of place that looks like they'll help you out no matter what you want, but actually exists to misinform women and pressure them away from getting abortions if that's what they want. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kathleen uh, spray paints fake abortion clinic on the front. This dude spray paints God is gay. And then they go back to, to his place and he passes out and she's like, I want to do more graffiti. So she, uh, uh, on his wall, uh, either spray paints or markers, Kurt smells like teen spirit. <laughs> that, that friend was Kurt Cobain. <laughs> and it was a reference to the fact that he smelled like Toby Vale's antiperspirant. He did not recognize the brand name when he woke up and saw it. And the rest is history. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Kathleen Hanna named the song that changed the world. <laughs> Goodness. Bikini Kill in the mid-90s did some tours with the Beastie Boys, uh, which is when she started going out with and fell in love with and eventually married uh, Adam Horowitz, better known as Ad Rock. Yeah. Not to give all credit for them getting better on on her shoulders or say she's some sort of puppet master, but it is clearly one step on the path that they took from the band that's saying, girls to do the laundry, girls to clean up my room, to the outspoken feminist act that they became. Mm-hmm. After Bikini Kill broke up, uh, she founded La Tigra, an electro-pop band that melded her, her feminist messages to uh, the cathartic liberation of dance. Oh. I was listening to La Tigra before uh, recording today to, to get into the mood. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, she stopped performing in 2005 due to an illness. She just couldn't keep it up anymore. And she was not diagnosed for another five years with Lyme disease. Everyone's getting Lyme disease. She lived for five years with undiagnosed Lyme disease. And that, that is, is a long, long road to come back from. That is the trend. Like doctors don't know how to diagnose Lyme disease. <laughs> but shortly after that, she formed a new band, her current band, The Julie Ruin, that is continuing to present. Uh, but you've heard at least one song she appeared on uh, uh, somewhat recently. Oh. She is the lady's voice in uh, the song Letter Bomb on Green Day's American Idiot. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Huh. Apparently, She's a Rebel from that album was also inspired by Rebel Girl, the Bikini Kill song. Oh. Probably their most popular song, so... I didn't put it in. You got their second most popular song, maybe, in this episode. Uh, But Bikini Kill has announced a a slate of reunion shows in 2019 that are all sold out months in advance. Yeah. Because I feel like there is a a Riot Girl comeback right right now. Oh, yeah. 
Speaking of uh, Bikini Kill reunion, Toby Vale played in a bunch of other bands uh, since they broke up. Some even alongside, you know, side projects like the Frumpies. Uh, she worked for Kill Rock Stars. She organized the first Lady Fest in Olympia. Uh, in 2010, she finished her degree from Evergreen State College. Oh, yeah. When you're uh, driving all around the it, world, you gotta take a break. You gotta take a break. It's so weird to think that like they were getting national coverage in Rolling Stone, but still driving in a van and crashing on people's floors. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Uh, she is currently drumming and singing for uh, a band called Girl Sperm. And the Jigsaw zine continued for uh, years as a blog. Oh. Yeah. Blogs and zines aren't that different. Bratmobile reformed in the year 2000 and put out two studio albums, which is technically a majority of their work. Oh. Uh, Allison Wolf played in a bunch of other bands as well. Uh, most recently, Sex Stains, which has been uh, rebranded and refocused as X Stains. Okay. Okay. Uh, she's another co-founder of Lady Fest. Uh, she hosts the podcast I'm in the Band, where she interviews women musicians. Mm-hmm. She's currently working on compiling her own oral history of Riot Girl, speaking to all of the people who were there, filtered through her as a person who was definitely there. Yeah. She published the zine called Riot Girl, after all. Uh, Molly Newman was co-owner of Lookout Records until it closed. And now has her own label, Simple Social Graces Discos. That's a very long title. Lookout uh, was the home for a number of great bands, and she managed several of them, including the Donnas and Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. Ah! Yeah. Ah! I love Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. <laughs> She's Everyone also... should love Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. <laughs> She's also vice president of label relations for eMusic. Aaron Smith, guitarist for Bratmobile, was manager of Lookout Records for a while. Uh, she played in another band with Allison Wolf during the Bratmobile hiatus, Cold Cold Hearts. She currently works for the nonprofit Sound Exchange. That's a, a advocacy group uh, that that does a lot of work, employs a lot of lawyers to make sure musicians are paid fairly for their work. Good organization. Sleater Kinney is still together making music. They took a hiatus of their own that uh, one of them spent making Portlandia. What? Yes, that is right. <laughs> the guitarist for uh, uh, Excuse 17 that went on to found Sleater Kinney that got outed to her dad in the pages of a magazine was one Carrie Brownstein. What? So. What? Just imagine, for most of the time I've been talking about this, the put a bird on it lady is just there in the background playing guitar with her signature leg kick. That is the most on-brand thing for her ever. So... Like, I'm shocked and somehow not. <laughs> so if you ever wondered why the, the sketches about the music industry and the music press are so well-observed... Yeah. Or how they just got so many darn bands on that show. Amazing! She was developing a TV series for Hulu uh, based on her memoir about growing up, be being college age in uh, the Olympia scene. But they declined the pilot just two weeks ago. Which I'm, I'm sad about. I'm very sad about that. I mean, that. You, you can go read her memoir. You, you can't watch it on an upcoming streaming series, unfortunately. Yeah. 
I'm sure at this point, all the video game fans that listen to us are, are screaming in, into their, their mobile devices for me to mention that Kill Rock Stars licensed Bratmobile and Heavens to Betsy songs for Gone Home, uh, a landmark uh, video game, a, a story about a young lesbian in Oregon. So naturally, it would be what she was listening to. What happens in that video game? You play her sister who comes home to find that your family's not there and it's very creepy and you're left to, to walk through all of this stuff and try to piece together what happened. Oh, okay. And what happened was your sister came out and there was a big fight and uh, your dad was cheating on your mom and blah, blah, blah. Oh. Yeah. Just Spoilers for Gone Home, I guess. So, darling, what have you learned? I will never watch Portlandia the same way again. <laughs> like, now I really want to go watch it all. Yeah, and, like, yeah. be like, oh, I understand so much more now. I mean, there there are several guest appearances from Corin Tucker, her, her Sleater Kinney uh-huh, bandmate. Uh-huh. I, well, I, I really did not know any of this. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know any of this. I feel like if I would have been born much earlier... Mm-hmm. I would have been all about this growing up. But, I mean, how would you have found it? There was, but not, I a wouldn't lot of, have. There was not a lot of radio play. And I lived in Michigan. Yeah. So, don't know how I would have. But if I would have had the opportunity. As the scene went on, as it started to get in, in deeper in the waves of Riot Girl, the internet became a, a huge part of it. Like, a lot of the networking was done on AOL once you get past 1995. <laughs> oh, AOL. So your scene didn't necessarily have to be a bunch of really rundown houses that charge 70 bucks a, a month for rent, mm-hmm. uh, like it was in Olympia. <laughs> Putting all this together, researching it, I, I think it speaks a lot to um, the value of networking and mm-hmm. positive networking and yeah. not just, hey, you make things, I make things, let's quid pro quo, but actually like being friends and being there for each other. It's, it's a difference between reciprocation and mutual support. Those are those are different things. Yeah, yeah. One is, is fine for, you know, plugging things, but the other is where you're going to find solidarity. It's where you're going to find mobilization. Yeah. And it, it's where you're going to be able to... to make a space for your your message to get out there. And and once it's out there, whoever picks it up, you don't get to choose who that is, but it's still going to run, you know? Yeah. Like like ripples in a stu- in a still pond. That's very uh very beautiful, darling. I am very beautiful, it's true. Those ripples. Are you talking about my abs with the people? No, you don't have abs. <laughs> so let's take a break. <laughs> Come back with letters. Welcome back, everyone. We have letters for you. Quite a lot, actually. Joe writes in, and they set our our minds at ease to know that, yes, you can buy a Three Wolf Moon t-shirt at Wolf Haven. And that that means that all is right in the world. So thank you very much. Yes. The prompt for this episode was I wanted to hear people's favorite bands. 
And while Joe does not have a favorite band they could share with us in the moment, they, they do want to sh- give a shout out to Tony Hawk Pro Skater era Ska. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess we're talking Goldfinger, that, that ilk. Yeah. Thank you very much, Joe. Final Gamer writes in, uh, letting us know that they continue to love our Valen Crimes tradition. Yeah. I do as well, so we're going to keep it up. Also uh, answering the prompt of favorite band, Big Country, which is a Scottish rock band uh, from the 80s and 90s. Uh, apparently their iconic sound is where they their guitars invoke the sounds of both bagpipes and fiddles. That's not a guitar then. Guitar sounds like a guitar. Uh, it sounds interesting. <laughs> uh, they participated in the famous charity single do they know it's christmas huh i'm never gonna hear that song the same way again feed the world yeah yeah what have you done i hate (laughs) that song so much (laughs) thanks final gamer ian writes in to tell us about their favorite uh band diggable planets uh, a hip-hop group from the early to mid 90s and continues to give us the entire story of diggable planets, They're the highs of winning their Grammy in, in 1994, to their, their lows as they had creative differences that split the band up after their second studio album. But it sounds like some really interesting music and people should check out. So thank you for telling us all about it, Ian. You really summed that one up. I did. Diptych writes in uh, and apparently looked up some more information uh, regarding our Valen Crimes episode yeah. uh, with Leopold and Loeb. But I thought that was your job. Well, they wanted to go even farther. Okay. When they were looking up more about uh, how Leopold left his prescription glasses at the crime scene, uh, he came across a fact that I did not mention, is that one of the owners of the other two pairs, the one that would have been out of town during mm-hmm. the crime was the lawyer who'd go on to deny the Rosenberg's request for a stay of execution. Mm-hmm. Diptych says that means Riverdale and Angels in America are in the same continuity now. That's true. They're both in reality. Yeah. Yes. Well, Riverdale's kind of in its own mm-hmm. little world of nope. reality. Nope, nope. It's no, all real. It's, it's all, all true. <laughs> all of it. Han Solo says. Yeah. Okay. Favorite kidnapping? Uh, sharing... The 1976 Chowchilla kidnapping, uh, where some crooks took a whole bus full of school children hostage, loaded them into a moving van, and then buried said moving van, which really takes a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, but they were ma- they were able to climb free and escape, and those kidnappers were caught. Looking up that also led them to look at the 1972 Faraday school kidnapping which also involved a group of school children who were imprisoned in a van before escaping, uh, that time because their teacher was wearing platform boots powerful enough to kick the door apart. Nice. Fashion, you know? Uh, also, for the latest prompt, uh, favorite band is the Speckled Band. I hate that story. <laughs> it's du- It's a dumb solution to a dumb mystery. <laughs> well, Speckled Band sucks. They also bring up... Gorillas. Okay, gorillas is gorillas. Okay. Gorillas are good. Good, they're good. Thanks, Diptych. Peter writes in, and their favorite band is Ratatat, the rock electronica uh, outfit. 
Ratatat is set apart from uh, others in that scene by having no singing, no lyrics. It's just the dang electronica itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are recommended 17 years, Pricks of Brightness, and Bear Feast to get a sense of what Ratatat's compositions are all about. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Bellafon writes in and answers our current prompt of favorite band uh, yes. by mentioning Avantasia, uh, a project by Tobias Samet to write and perform rock opera, but power metal instead of rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, he writes songs, finds musicians to perform the instruments for the album, and then invites a bunch of lead singers from other bands to do individual characters. Is he interested in Hamlet? Because I know a guy. It's already been done. Very well. <laughs> also shared a picture of their newly adopted dog, Gloria. Gloria is gigantic. Gloria's cute. And Congratulations I, on your new fur baby. I love your giant dog. One fine cat writes in again with a sampler platter of, of prompt responses. Favorite extinct creature is the the helicoprion, uh, which is that shark-like creature with the tooth whirl. Yeah. That nobody that's... really knows what it's for. It's so weird. Does it unroll? Does it not? Uh, the, the jury's still out on that. I'm so confused by this thing. Yeah, it, it really blew your mind last time we saw it at the uh, Field Museum. Yes. Uh, not too long ago, actually. Last month. Yeah. I have so many questions about this thing. <laughs> uh, their favorite band was once Motion City Soundtrack, perhaps the Fratellis. But uh, now music is a means to focus on coding. So uh, bands that, that prioritize a strong beat have come to the fore, like Caravan Palace, uh, Parov Stellar, and Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Whatever works, I guess. Yeah. Uh, One Fine Cat's most anticipated event of the year to come is running a a Passover Seder on their own for the first time. Ooh! And also going to Israel in May. Cool. Have fun. One Fine Cat does not have a favorite kidnapping or kidnapper, but has more to say about Leopold and Loeb. They and their girlfriend were students at U Chicago, where all of the dirty deeds went down. And they moved to an apartment that happened to be across the street from the Bobby ah. Franks house. At that time, it was pretty run down. There, there was always construction equipment on site, but it never actually did anything. Uh, apparently, the city's been spending years trying to get the property condemned, though the owner uh, was fighting back very hard to prevent uh, uh, such a declaration. And so that is how they first learned about the the tragic case of the self-inflated murderers, Leopold and Loeb, uh, which led to said girlfriend flipping out much like you did hearing the name of the juvenile detention facility on Riverdale. You don't name them after the criminals! It's sort of a carrot and stick naming, right? Like maybe you will die in here and maybe you will become a a valuable member of society. No, I think it's just the, I think someone is just weird. Okay. Someone on that, I need to talk to the person on the writer's team that did that and know why. Why did you do it? Okay. Uh, Jersey writes in to share that... They very much appreciated our Babyface Nelson reference sure, and immediately you, you can, got it. You can take credit for our reference. That's fine. I don't mind. Our reference from Oh Brother or Art Thou in relation to it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Peter wanted to uh, uh, pat us on the back the same way. 
Claritic's favorite band is the one that got her into music as a medium, Daft Punk, because of a weird accident one night, which sounds like, I don't know, the, the opening to a, a Saturday morning superhero cartoon, but I promise it's true. Every once in a while, to fill holes in the schedule, uh, Cartoon Network would air during the Adult Swim block uh, uh, music videos. This happened in America more often than Australia, apparently, but Claritic caught one of those few Australian cases and saw the music video for Daft Punk's One More Time. And it was the first time she heard music that, that wasn't, you know, what her parents played in the car on trips. It, it's nothing like that sort of thing. And nobody else was around to, to hear it or talk about it. She couldn't find anybody talking about it online. It was just like this weird personal fluke until uh, I, one day she did find it uh, again after, after those years in the musical wilderness. So thank you very much, Claritic. Uh, James writes in to answer a few prompts. Uh, favorite thing from 2018, getting a job and moving into a new place. Pretty good things. Uh, something looking forward to in 2019, graduating from technical technical college and hopefully getting a job in their field have you tried starting a band instead <laughs> uh favorite extinct animal the dodo Ooh. uh james mentioned that while they were named for being stupid they actually you know weren't and were actually just unafraid of humans uh and continued life as normal which basically led to them becoming extinct which to me sounds pretty stupid so there you go they just wanted to see the best in people and hope that, you know, they'll be good neighbors. Yeah, okay. Uh, favorite kidnapping? Uh, fictional one. Oh, uh, thank goodness. From the anime Daughter of 20 Faces, a young wealthy girl named Chizuko uh, gets kidnapped by the thief 20 Faces. However, uh, the extent of the kidnapping is 20 Faces inciting her to join his band of thieves and her saying yes. And favorite band, they might be Giants. Okay, but what are they? I don't know. Okay. Thanks, James, and thanks to everybody for writing in. We do appreciate your letters, and we love hearing from you because you're such wonderful people. Did you get your hair done? Looks great. If you would like to send us a letter, where can those go, dear? Podcast at gmail.com. And we would love to hear your show suggestions, your questions, your, your corrections, any stories you might like to share, and, of course, our regular prompt responses. But while you're out there, please feel free to, to give us a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or, or Stitcher or wherever else you so choose. You can also just tell a friend. Word, word of mouth is the, the best way we have for people to, to find out about us and, and hopefully learn they, they like us. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, we do not have zines to distribute. No. But uh, it's it's the next best thing. Yeah. One thing that can be distributed is a final bid is now available for sale in print and PDF on Drive-Thru RPG. Very cool. Very good. Congratulations. Thank you. So if you missed the Kickstarter and you would love to check it out, you can now do that. And I really encourage you to because we, we had a good time making games and hopefully you'll have a great time playing games so i guess that's it i guess that's it i'm grant i'm elena history's better with, with your, your honey, honey.